They're coming to get you, Barbara. Keep watching the sky. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Don't fall asleep. I want to play a game. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. Children of the night, what music they make. Hello, and welcome back to Saturday Night Spookorama, the podcast examining the history of horror films from the golden age to the present day. We are coming to you live in crystal clear spookasonic audio from our luxury studio at the bottom of the gully behind my house where no one will ever suspect the bodies are hidden. I'm your host, Thad Kelly, and with me as always are my co-hosts, Justice Hepburn. Hey, everybody. Alex Kump. Hey. And Sabrina Gall. Hey, guys. And our tireless producer, Mr. Andrew Barnes. Hey, everyone. This is episode nine, and tonight we're taking a slight detour as we take a look at some horror-adjacent films in the scary movie interregnum of 1937 and 1938. First from 1937, it's China's first horror film, the Phantom of the Opera adaptation Song at Midnight. Then in 1938, we're taking a look at French art house director Abel Gans's anti-war epic ghost remake film, <laughs> J'accuse. So, how are we doing today, guys? You know, I'm a, I'm a person who exists in the world. That's unusual. As a ghost. Oh, <laughs> okay. Still, uh, still a ghost. All right. Folks, that has not changed. Alex has not come back to life. <laughs> so listening to this episode, uh, you might wonder, why are we talking about a couple movies that don't really necessarily always sound like traditional horror movies? The reason for that is in 1937 and 1938, basically no horror films were made in the United States. We've talked about this on previous shows, but just as a reminder, in 1935 about the Hollywood Production Code had come into effect, which greatly reduced the amount of sort of explicit violence and sexuality you could have in uh, motion pictures made in the United States. And so many filmmakers thought, well, with these restrictions in place, we can't kind of provide the thrills and chills that our viewers want. Second, the granddaddy of all the horror studios was, of course, Universal. And uh, in 1936, after a lot of financial mismanagement in the midst of the Great Depression, Universal, basically, there was a hostile takeover and the Lemley family was forced out. Uh, and the new ownership thought this horror movie stuff is a dead end and we're not going to do it anymore. The final factor was that uh, around 1935-1936, the British Film Board kind of sort of banned horror movies being shown in Britain. It's unclear to what extent that that was an official ban or to what extent that was just like a soft enforcement. But either way, the English speaking filmmaking world basically considered horror movies, you know, a fad that was dead. They'd been popular since 31. Dracula and Frankenstein came out, but this stuff was just, it, it was over. So for the next two years, uh, 1937 and 1938, almost no horror films were made, uh, you know, almost none that I know of. So we're talking about a Chinese film uh, made in China, which obviously was not subject to the whims of the English-speaking audience of uh, the United States and Britain. And then we're talking about a French film that is really only horror-related rather than being a true horror film. So our first film uh, from 1937 is uh, Song at Midnight. Uh, Justice, can you tell us what happens in Song at Midnight? I sure can. Uh, just a warning before I read my pre-written synopsis. It is very long-winded because this movie is weird and a lot <laughs> happens in it. I tried to edit it down and I could not. <laughs> but as for the synopsis, 
Uh, Song at Midnight opens with a theater troupe entering a spooky old theater. Among them is the young singer Soon, uh, who puts on a poor performance during rehearsal. Soon is sad until he discovers a mysterious herded man lurking in the attic of the theater. This mysterious man turns out to be Song Dang Ping, a famous actor who supposedly died ten years earlier, but has re-emerged with a horrifically scarred face. Song offers to teach Sun to sing, <laughs> and explains that he was captured and had nitric acid thrown in his face for being a revolutionary, and also because a feudal lord named Tang was rejected by Song's girlfriend Lee. Upon seeing his newly scarred face, Song fakes his own death the news of which causes Lee to be driven insane. Sun takes Song up on his offer, but in exchange, Sun must romance Lee while pretending to be Song. He does so despite having a girlfriend of his own named Louis Day. Unfortunately for everyone, Tang turns out to be the owner of the theater where Sun works and begins to sexually assault Lou Day. Sun stops him, and Song emerges from the shadows to take revenge on his nemesis. However, in the process of throwing Tang out of a window, Song is seen by the townsfolk, who assume he is a monster, and he is chased to a tower on the edge of town. With nowhere else to go, Song throws himself out of the window to his death. The film ends with Sun and Lu Day inspired by Song's actions and ready to fight another day. Uh, this movie's weird, you guys. Wait, that's what this movie was about? <laughs> More or less. I had to cut out a bunch of stuff that happened. Yeah, for the sake of our listeners, um, both this movie and the uh, other movie we watched for this week were about two hours long. Um, uh, you know, about... 30 to 40 minutes longer than every movie we've watched so far. And 30 to 40 minutes longer than they needed to be. Yes, that too. <laughs> We're very used to uh, to watching movies that are like 60 minutes, 70 minutes. Uh, so this week was a bit of a haul. A couple, couple also, long pictures. they were not the best paced. No. Yeah, both both have big pacing problems. Yeah. But I guess we'll get to that. I I thought this one was uh kind of interesting um because it it felt it was made by what seemed to be people who were uh, making films who didn't have the practice at making films. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it felt a lot like a play at a lot of, in a lot of periods of time and but it also looked like they had been up to date in what sorts of techniques people who were making films were making. Yeah, I think that there is a, a really big theatrical quality to this. Obviously, it's about a theater. You know, it's called Song at Midnight, and there's a ton of Chinese opera in it. So if you're a big fan of uh, Chinese opera and uh, modal music, this this movie has got something for you, because it opens without any explanation with a really long... Very pretty. Uh, yeah, like, I don't know what the Chinese opera equivalent of an aria is, but... It's that. I mean, it's probably an aria, but you know. Yeah, yeah. they might have a term, though. I don't know. But uh, yeah, the the film opens with um, a shadow singing uh, a, a lovely uh, opera tune without a lot of explanation, and it goes on forever. Yeah, literally, it's like 20 minutes, isn't it? It's, to put it's this like in perspective. Like 10, it's but like, it's... Is it? Okay. Interestingly, we watched a subtitled version, but the film itself was already subtitled in Chinese during the opera Yeah. Parts. I like that. Yeah, I don't, and I um, don't know enough about early Chinese cinema, which is to say nearly anything, to tell you if, is that because of the song? You know, I, uh, it doesn't really mean anything to me. Maybe it was just the print we had. And I guess another thing we should say is that um, no high quality prints of this film exist. Well, according to the Wikipedia, there's uh, two DVD versions. Yes, uh, but they're reconstructions and they're both imperfect. Aren't we all? Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Does that imply that, that there's a there's a cut there is potentially a cut of this that is even longer? <laughs> potentially, uh, but it would be yet to be discovered. Ah, uh, yes. Mm. I think that we watched 
the longer one because the running time on the Wikipedia says it's only 113 minutes and it was definitely over two hours. No, it was it was like a minute under two hours. Okay, thank you, Sabrina. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so just for a little background on this film, because it's, well, it's a lot of things. It <laughs> is an adaptation of The Phantom of the Opera. It's actually the first sound adaptation uh, on film of The Phantom of the Opera. There was a the very famous silent version starring Lon Chaney Sr. as The Phantom made by Universal in the 20s, which director Ma Xu Weibang had almost certainly seen. So that's sort of interesting, but this film is a lot more political than I was expecting. Not that I was expecting anything, uh, but it is a very political piece, and it's very much of its time. This was made in, well, it was released in 1937, and it was made in Shanghai, which at that time was the center of Chinese language filmmaking. It hadn't moved to Hong Kong yet. But just uh, sort of for context, in 1937, the Japanese invaded China. It was the beginning of the Second Sino-Japanese War. Uh, the ten previous years had been a civil war between the communists and the nationalists. Uh, and before that was uh, the warlord period where China had been basically divided up between uh, the control of warlords. Uh, and so that is when we look in the historical part, the flashback part of the film, to where Song is a freedom fighter or a revolutionary. It is as part of that warlord uh, society that China was in at the time. And, well, I don't want to get too deep into the history of it exactly, but that's the context in which this film is made. Oh, man, I really should have read read that before, <laughs> read something among those, along those lines before watching this movie. It was, uh, I felt like I was being thrown in the middle of a whole bunch of really political views, and I didn't know enough about any of them. Yeah, ditto. To, uh... Same, though. <laughs> yeah, and well, you, you can see in the, the film that the script is very, the, the feelings at the time were towards sort of um, Chinese nationalism, uh, the reunification of China politically towards, you know, uh, some kind of representative government rather than the empire, which had collapsed in 1911, I think. And then these basically just military strongmen, these warlords. So you get that sentiment, even though the film is, is removed from that by, say, about 20 years, you know, there had been the Civil War. The sentiment that the film has is towards sort of Chinese unity and national governance and and sort of the reestablishment of Chinese pride after basically being brutalized by the Western powers and Japan for the past like 150 years when this film was made. Oh, it's kind of ironic that um, the piece in the in the middle of the of the movie, um, somewhere in the middle of the movie, seemed to have some really French roots. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah, a, the play, revolutionary France. Yeah, the play that they put on seems seems to be set in revolutionary france it's like les mis right they're doing les mis yeah kind of yeah which is like pretty cool i don't know uh that's really interesting mm -hmm. uh also speaking of bits of things you don't expect to pop up there are a few snippets of western classical music it's it's mostly mm -hmm. i think a chinese musical score and the opera is chinese but there is some western music one of which is you, you hear a little snippet of a uh, rhapsody in blue <laughs> Which is very, very strange. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then you hear, uh, ah, shit, I still can't remember the title of this, this piece. It's uh, got the, the word mountain on it. I don't think it's Night at Bald Mountain, but it's one of those, one of those big ones at the big chase scene at the end. Yeah, yeah, I recognize that, but I couldn't place what it was. And I couldn't tell if it was you know, however I was watching it or, or what, but it sounded like there was some Chinese instrumentation 
um, with this, with the more Western score. Yeah, I think that one thing that kind of like struck me as very interesting is that I expected this to sort of have more sort of a, uh, a Chinese feel to it. It felt very Western in terms of just like the pacing of the movie and mm-hmm. a lot of the, when you think about like old, like Asian, old school Asian theater, you know, it's very slow and like grand and dramatic and like it has that. But it also, I don't know, I had a sentence and it wasn't a good one. No, no, I, I agree with you 100%. When um, this film was released, at the time, it wasn't terribly well received. And one of the reasons why is because it was considered too Western. The audience at the time apparently thought that it was too much like an American movie. <laughs> but there is definitely, to my view, it seems very Chinese, obviously. Uh, and like you say, it's in that tradition of East Asian drama. It has a lot of that stuff in it, too. Um, I was expecting it to feel more explicitly Chinese. Um, I watched uh, Rashomon recently, which is Japanese, above, of course, but um, mm. it, it really keeps to those roots, whereas I felt it was a much more American for the time film. Um, yeah, it's funny that you bring up Kurosawa because I, I actually thought about some of his films myself when watching this, specifically his uh, Shakespeare adaptations. Mm, Throne uh, of Blood. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Throne of Blood and Ran, just because those are movies that take very familiar literature from Western culture and then Kurosawa puts it in the context of sort of Japanese history and Japanese culture uh, and it creates something new and really cool. And this film... Uh, kind of does the same thing for the Phantom of the Opera. Obviously, this film is is inspired by that story, but uh, it, it deviates a lot from like you know the actual story. It's not just a straightforward adaptation. So it is that story, but filtered through Chinese drama and opera and the political climate of China and uh, stuff like that. Yeah, I kind of feel like more than Phantom of the Opera being the basis of it, it feels more like just every universal monster movie filtered through all of that because like yeah phantom of the opera obviously makes the backbone but a uh, song is in some seriously invisible man type bandages right after he gets scarred the scene uh where uh soon and lee meet out in the field is very dracula mm-hmm. the ending is very frankenstein oh yeah it's like the same ending as Frank's, yeah. <laughs> down to him getting trapped in a tower and burned out yeah yeah it's the exact same ending it's sort of like they took everything they liked from these universal monster movies and put them in a Chinese context. And I don't know if it totally works, but it's interesting. Yeah, it really what that what that did for me was had gave me a really bad sense of place. <laughs> you know, you're trying to <laughs> you're trying to like filter through all of these locations, you know, you end up you're like outside like 10 different places. You don't I don't really know where this theater is in relation to other things, but they're outside of it for a solid portion. Yeah, and there's an interesting I, I don't know enough to say if this is accurate or not. But, you know, uh, something that you see in the film is these actors, there's differences in the way people dress. So, uh, like, the acting troupe comes into town, they're all in contemporary Western dress, you know, suits and ties and and Western-style dresses and stuff like that. Well, the people in this town that they come to, you know, maybe the implication being that this is sort of more provincial, but they, for the most part, wear traditional Chinese clothing. So you kind of, at least in my mind, see that sort of interplay at work in the film itself. Yeah. Um, I think that that kind of theme kind of resonates throughout the rest of the film too. You sort of have that um, that balance between different uh, opposing ideas throughout the whole film. You know, you have like the political versus the, well, not the political, but the like uh, 
revolutionary versus the opposite of revolutionary counter-revolutionary i suppose um establishment maybe and then you know you have the sort of like weird like love triangle uh bouncing back and forth between you know who's you know loving who and who's actually this other person well another i i mentioned this to barnes but i was reminded of el cyrano de bergerac oh. oh my god i thought the same thing i literally was telling max the same thing during the movie and we brought up the the pen, the peninsula <laughs> it's my favorite monologue oh uh, yeah <laughs> that's actually really all i had to say about that but uh just in terms of like another piece of source material getting stirred into the pot that is this movie mm. yeah <laughs> so uh i i mentioned before that this film was not very popular at the time of its release, but it actually has grown in stature, uh, especially in China, where it's now considered, you know, a real classic of early Chinese cinema. And it was actually uh, remade in modern times by, uh, I believe, Ronnie Yu, who would be most famous to Western audiences as the director of Freddy vs. Jason. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. Sorry, we were talking about monster movies that it reminded us of mm. the first shot with sun yao yao U, sun Xiao U, Xiao Xiao U, U, yeah on uh the stage reminded me of okay so he's standing there he's, he's just done his thing and then a shadow comes over him it reminded me a bit of the famous scene of, from nosferatu with the shadow mm. yeah also just a really cool shot yeah yeah this is a this is a future reference a thing that they did not reference in a film that was not referencing this film but um <laughs> i was thinking a lot of uh fuck what's that there's that musical horror movie with meatloaf in it <laughs> besides rocky horror oh yeah it's a different one <laughs> it's uh it's about what? a musical theater camp oh another one you're talking uh, about stage fright stage fright oh i've heard of that but i have never seen it um it's super silly and super weird and you should definitely watch it but uh they do a Phantom of the Opera, but they uh, do it with in a Kabuki style. That's amazing. <laughs> so I was just thinking of that this entire movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought that there was actually a lot of fun sort of camera stuff in this. Uh, fun framing and lighting. There's some expressionistic kind of stuff. Even the, the sets are, you know, it's, it's drenched in that sort of uh, universal style um, gothic flair. Uh, but you've got that, you know, expressionistic lighting where you have Sun, he's lit from below near the end. and uh, That's a lot. That's cool. That's some good stuff. Some Dutch angles. Dutch angles in both the movies we watched this week, actually. What does that mean for those at home and those uneducated? <laughs> a Dutch angle is when you put the camera on a tilt. Usually it signifies something that's supposed to be disorienting, uh, unless it's the film uh, Battlefield Earth. In which case, <laughs> the camera is continually at an angle for unclear reasons. <laughs> I, <laughs> I've actually heard an extreme Dutch angle called the Chinese angle. I don't know if that's got any relation. Huh. Okay. Justice, you're the Could film be. school kid. I don't know, man. <laughs> Speaking of the sets and, and the gothic atmosphere, and uh, also like taking inspiration from the, the Universal movies, I got to say that uh, they... they they must have bought the giant cobweb from the Dracula set, but it did not survive the trip very well. Looks like shit. <laughs> Folks, that is a joke can, because there's a big old cobweb in this movie, too. That's all. Can you, Dad, if you can make a joke, can you please just make sure you clear it as a joke afterward? <laughs> Folks, back home, I just want you to know that Donald Glover is not Bela Lugosi's grandson. Uh, Wait, what? <laughs> I have been telling everybody that. As uh, we mentioned in our Thanksgiving special, which for you was weeks ago. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
The acting for me is, is, is sort of hard to talk about just because I think that there are, first of all, it's in a foreign language, which I obviously know really nothing about. And so it, it it's hard for me in foreign language movies to, like, I don't, I, I, it's hard for me to judge acting in that immediate sort of gut way that you would for an English film, at least for me. I don't know if anyone else feels that way. No, yeah. I mean, especially it comes from a different point of view than a lot of Western acting styles. So to be able to sort of, unless you've grown up with it, being able to sort of like talk about it is a lot harder yeah and, and it, it comes from a like we've been talking about a different dramatic tradition mm-hmm. uh, which is expressing itself in a way that we're not used to all things considered you know it's kind of inaccessible but it's not as inaccessible <laughs> as i was afraid it was going to yeah. be you know i knew nothing about this movie except that it was a the first chinese horror film and it was an adaptation of phantom of the opera and so I, I you know i was worried that's like this is going to be totally obscure to me but no like you, you know it, it's not it's coming from a different place than you're used to but it's not totally obscure especially the first few minutes of the movie um yeah I, I was getting nervous markedly lower quality yeah. like especially print wise <laughs> I, I was nervous yeah it feels like he, the the song is basically a like a narration of how our um disfigured character sees himself in the world <laughs> and it's <laughs> It's really unfortunate. It's a lovely song, though. Mm. Uh, actually, I, yeah. Oh no, I, I meant before that. Oh, before that, I don't even remember what happened before that. The like two or three minutes that's just like the little hunchback guy runs into the director. He's got a lantern. Oh, like the lighting's all very murky. Did I watch the yeah. same movie? <laughs> this is how the film begins. <laughs> this is how the film begins. <laughs> and then, like, as soon as the actual like opera starts then turns into a real movie but before that it's like uh uh but how about our uh face prosthetics <laughs> I-, I thought the uh the the makeup was uh was a lot of fun yeah um, mm-hmm. the uh, especially songs uh makeup the the phantom type character very gruesome very very cool it, it feels like a-, a lost universal movie the prosthetics for the the hunchback guy who takes care of the the theater i found less less appealing mm. like it's fine when he's just a creepy little man who you know is around the theater but then he comes like a major character later and he's like in sort of like non spooky dramatic scenes and he's got this giant prosthetic thing on and it it's it's that like... makes so much more sense. I was just really confused about his body type the whole time. Whole time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> know, he's sort of like this weird, like, comedic relief character to begin with. Yeah. and it... So I'm not, like, super upset about it. No, no, no. And, and again, it might be coming from, like, this could be, uh, like, an archetype in traditional Chinese drama that I know nothing about. You know, it, it, it reminded me of masked theater, kind of. And again, I that, that could not be true also, but... That's an impression that I took away. It also reminds me of just like good old universal monster movies, the hmm. god awful uh, com- comedic relief in them. <laughs> like at the end of the movie, yeah. like the like the big final thing is, and there's the little hunchback guy getting trampled, and then he's okay, and but it's all played for laughs. He's in front of a door. Oh, the door fell on him. <laughs> that, all this Indeed. is true. Indeed. Well, uh, I don't know. Is, is there more we want to talk about with uh, Song at Midnight? I would just like to say I thought it was interesting that in this uh, Phantom of the Opera adaptation, they uh, they switched the gender of their Christine character, but yeah. I have no idea what to make of that, so I don't, I don't have any comments. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure if I was supposed to read more or less, like, sexual tension between them <laughs> because of it. So. I don't know anything about Phantom of the Opera, so it didn't seem weird to me. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. I'm sorry. 
Uh, Wait, Alex, you actually know nothing about the Phantom of the Opera? I, like, know the very vague plot. Okay, so um, in college, Eric Maxud was super into uh, Phantom of the Opera. He's seen every adaptation. Of course he was. Would not be surprised if he's seen this adaptation. And what I know is from one night when he was drunk on a porch telling me about it, which is not very much. (laughs) And I was really not listening to him. I was really just looking at him. Did he tell you about uh, when Colm Wilkinson was the Phantom of the Opera, was played the Phantom? Because he was the best Phantom. Who? Colm Wilkinson. Who the fuck's that? The Les Mis guy? Yeah. Dang. Yeah, it's the um the London. It's no, it's the Canadian cast. Oh, I'm sorry that I don't have my fucking Canadian Broadway casts <laughs> on fucking point for references. <laughs> no, but uh, so it, it was really wonderful, and uh, that's that's about it. That guy makes a legit looking phantom. Yeah, you looking it up now? Yeah, it's good shit. Anyway, Thad, go on. Oh, uh, when I was in high school, um, you know, I did theater (laughs) anyhow for whatever reason an object of their obsession was the andrew lloyd webber musical so that's how i know all the music from it uh that's all yeah i can't stand sarah brightman though um sorry guys anyone out there who uh likes her more than zero (laughs) (laughs) so I'm sorry, Thad. <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, I have no a special attachment to it. No, I'm just sorry you had to listen to her sing oh, so much. Oh, 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 I get it. I get it. <laughs> Let's just uh, take a moment to beat up on theater kids. Um, I want to <laughs> every day, to every day. Kids. Theater kids make the fucking world go round. They grow up to be the weird artists, do things you like. Go fuck yourselves. <laughs> yeah, like a third of them okay, do. Okay, well, and the rest of them are just sad fucking white kids. Whatever. That's a, that's a third of everyone. Good point. One third of all people. For sad fucking white kids. Well, it's two thirds of film students. Yeah, some of them turn into film students. Let's beat up on film yeah. kids more. Fuck film kids. Okay. Tell me more about Truffaut's great. Go fuck yourself. Truffaut's great. He's rad. Truffaut is fine at best. Godard is the one who can go to hell. Oh, that's that guy true. sucks. Yeah. Real opinions. Yeah, that's accurate. Uh, which one is in Close Encounters of the Third Kind? That's Truffaut. That's Truffaut. That's what I thought. I feel like the number of tangents we've gone on while talking about this movie says a lot about the movie. <laughs> we said a. <laughs> it's kind of a hard movie to talk about. Uh, well, gang, shall we? Uh, shall we wrap up our discussion of uh, Song at Midnight? Yeah. What's the uh, moral of this story? I would say the moral is if you're in love with someone and then you tell them that you're dead. Uh, but then you spend the next 10 years singing to them every night. Don't be surprised when they go nuts. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, maybe if you love someone and they love you back, uh, don't just be vain and assume that it's like fine to lie to them because you're ugly now. I mean, okay. That's that's also applies to Jacques. <laughs> <laughs> no, the real moral of Jacques is don't make promises. <laughs> or at least don't keep them for any reason. <laughs> Any more morals we want to uh, bring in? Overthrow the powers in a great revolution? That's sort of the actual moral. That's my favorite moral for any movie. That's what Song would want us to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The funny thing is that the uh, the Kuomintang, the group he was part of, are the ones who lost the Chinese revolution. Uh, They're the ones who live in Taiwan now. Yeah, um, but that was after this movie was made, so. <laughs> uh, underdogs? Uh, I, I don't want to officially um, sort of hitch this podcast to any side in the uh, Chinese leadership conflict. So I think that that's, that would be uh, a bad. What if we need to break into the Chinese market? Mm, True. Yeah. Of course, of course. <laughs> can we just pick both sides? I'll be a Maoist. You can be a uh, I don't want to be. I don't. I don't want. <laughs> Why do you get to be the ma- Anyhow. Um, <laughs> uh, well, gang, would we recommend Song at Midnight? Nah. 
I would say if you if you listen to this podcast, I would recommend it. You know, maybe it's not going to be the most fun time you have for the entire part, but I think there's some very interesting parts of the movie that, like, kept me watching. Yeah, if you're, like, keeping up at home these movies we're watching, I'd say, like, you know, you're going to enjoy the uh, the handful of references that we also enjoyed, so. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I would say, like, watch the, the flashback section and watch the very end, because that has yeah. the best stuff, and the rest of it is kind of a slog. If you're going to watch one of the movies from this week... Oh, don't watch Jacuzzi. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. I would probably not recommend it. I think it's an interesting movie. I find it more interesting for its context and history and like its relationship to other films rather than like the movie itself. Uh, You know, but if like like you guys said, if you are a listener of this podcast, it's probably something that you'd get a kick out of. But if, for a general audience, I, I would say it's it's probably it's too long. The pacing's weird. So uh, I guess I, I would give it a mm. an, an admiring no. Uh, I, I just want to point out that this is the first movie that we made we've watched that was not made by white people uh, and not starring white people. And that's I mean, because it's from China uh, for Chinese audiences. But also, I think that's super important to talk about you know i think that even if you're just uh expanding your literacy of non-fucking white people horror movies like go for it even from today though like it's still somewhat difficult to find movies that aren't made by straight white men horror movies so you know going back to your roots is never a problem yeah i mean i would say that japanese cinema would be an exception to that and increasingly korean and chinese cinema as well but i i, I you know I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you there's also just like the barrier problem that we live in the u.s so mm. like i just accessing the, those movies is probably a lot harder mm. unless you don't live in the u.s uh our austrian listeners please send us austrian horror films <laughs> God, oh yeah. man that'd be so cool you can probably just get those though i want recommendations man we're gonna watch funny games at some point. Yes. Oh man, I just watched that for the for the first dish time. I was I was thinking that we should watch fu- like for, uh, make a special. I don't know when, but make a special where we watch both funny games back to back and see what happens. <sighs> <laughs> you know that movie pisses me off. Does it really? Why? Uh, I just is this podcast about funny games? <laughs> Wait, is that an option? Could it be? So, I don't want to fucking talk about Jacuzzi. <laughs> <laughs> But the night is on my mind. So Paul A while I drop this rhyme. See, Jake be getting early when the sun get dark. He be coming out the heads, but you don't let me start. There's activities are plenty in the nighttime. So the ghetto child is seem to be the right time. See, kids be getting stuck with jewels or fly gimmicks. Shorty see the action in it, start to mimic. Running to the corner, the dice game is raising. Looking at the loop, it seems so amazing. Puts the short down to be exact when pound. He shakes the stones in his hands, then he lets it down. Uh. Scared money don't make none. He threw a trip on the ace, now he's out, son. Hits the local bodega to wolf down the hero. Son is on a midnight run like the Nero. Spots a shorty rock standing on his block. The fees behind him to pump, so we asked if it's not. Conversation that he kicked to the shorty was a slower. Increased intensity, cause there she was a flower. Took her to the crib, there she ran her jigs about mind up with me and being positive. He yawned and he sighed to 105. Then he finally realized the honey was alive. Uh, well, uh, no one wanted to summarize this, so I did. Uh, <laughs> oh, God bless you, Thad. So anyhow, Jacques begins in the waning days of World War I in a bombed-out French village near the legendary bloody battlefield of Verdun. There, two soldiers, Jean and Francois, struggle over their mutual love of Francois's wife, Edith. 
The two men are sent with a party on a suicidal and pointless patrol onto the battlefield, where all but they are killed, only for the war to end in armistice, and the two men uh, are carried back to their lines. While the rest of the unit is buried and Francois lays dying, Jean promises that he will never love Edith so that she keeps her husband's memory alive. Upon his return, Jean acts as a surrogate husband and father to Francois' family, but always remains physically distant, working in his glass shop. Twenty years pass, and Edith's daughter, Helene, is torn between her love of her surrogate father and her suitor, Henri, the new owner of the glass factory where Jean works and the officer that had sent the unit to die at the twilight of the war. Jean impassionedly argues with Henri and the other men at the glass plant, claiming that the looming European war need not be inevitable and that universal love is necessary to prevent it. He returns to Verdun, <laughs> where he meets Flo, a cafe owner who uh, has remained there out of love for a soldier who died on the ill-fated scouting mission. Apparently under the enormity of guilt and the sense that another war on the, on the horizon and that soldiers of the Great War died for nothing, Jean spirals into madness, raving that he has discovered the secret for peace and then falls into a fugue state. He is insensate for some time, during which Helene marries Henri, who has taken Jean's invention of bulletproof glass and enriched himself by selling it to the military. When Jean awakens, he flies into a rage at what he sees as his betrayal by his surrogate daughter, but Edith tearfully begs him to leave her be. Calmed by the revelation that unconditional love is still alive, he sets out to the memorial at Verdun, as war is declared and the nations of Europe mobilize for further slaughter. Arriving at the memorial, he calls upon the 12 million dead of the Great War to arise and end the coming conflict. Surprisingly, this works, and countless ghosts of maimed soldiers appear and swarm into the cities of the living, a testament to the bloodshed and terror of war. An enraged mob burns Jean alive for bringing the dead to life, and as the film closes, we see his spirit rising to join the ghostly mass of soldiers. So what did we think of Jacques? I already know the answer, but say it anyway. Fuck this movie. <laughs> It's not very good. Yeah. Um. So this this movie for me really faces uh, the problem that all war movies do for me. Um. No matter how varied a cast you have, every single person looks exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I will never be able to tell who is having issues with love interests or whose wife is uh, loving two people. It, it's just the same person twice. <laughs> like, I'm going to be honest with you. You were giving me this description of what happened in this movie. And you were talking about this, like, colonel dude who, like, sold the glass. And I was not aware that was a character. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was still yeah, the same neither. guy who was very angry at things. <laughs> Dad, did you like this movie? No. Um, I like the spirit I of liked, this movie. I, yeah. uh, yes, I like the spirit of this movie. And I like yeah. parts of this movie. Uh, but I, I thought that the whole was a mess. So uh, Abel Gans, just to give a little background, was a French art house director. He's very famous for directing a couple of silent films, uh, one of them being Napoleon, the epic uh, silent film about the life of Napoleon, and the other being the original film, Jacques. Made like 10 years earlier. 20, excuse uh, me. Yeah, 20 years earlier. It was made in 1919 immediately after the war. And they are very, they're both anti-war films. They follow the same basic plot structure, but they're very, very different. As you can imagine, a film made in 1919 would not feel like World War II is about to break out the next year, which by the way, it did uh, after this movie. It, you think he got a little more bitter? Yes, this is a bitter, <laughs> blunt movie, but it follows the same basic plot. Jean uh, in that movie, or I don't know if he has the same name, but uh, the main character in that movie goes mad 
But unlike in this film where he goes mad for reasons, <laughs> in the original, he's shell-shocked. And anyhow, it's, it's more about the war rather than this movie where like the first 20 minutes is about the war. So anyhow, this uh, film obviously is a remake. It was made at the very dawn or right before the beginning of World War II. It is a very angry, bitter movie. Mm. And I think in many ways, it's one of the big problems of the film is that it's kind of three movies. You have the first part, which is the war film. You have the middle part, which is like this padding mm. where there's a bunch of like love Hash- triangles, hashtag decade of incest. <laughs> let's let, let's not get away from the fact that this movie is a guy promises he won't love his friend's wife after he dies. And then instead he wants to fuck his daughter. Who he has known since she was a little child. Technically, that's not his wife. <laughs> Technically. Ugh. And the daughter is super into it. Because, of course. Until she's just not. Till that part of the movie ends. And then the mom, but the mom is also super into her daughter sleeping with this, this guy. <laughs> uh, and then you have the final part, which is this supernatural, proto-psychedelic ghost thing which is really cool i liked that part (laughs) uh i really like the beginning of this movie and i really like the end of this movie and everything in the middle pisses me off and i like the sentiment of the film not to belabor it too much but i think world war one is well it's obviously one of the most important events in history it is a much more illustrative uh example of what war is like rather than World War II, the so-called good war. And it is right and natural to have all the anger that this movie has Mm. for what it has. And for so many war movies that, like, I think about, like, Saving Private Ryan, which is like, war is hell, but everything we did was right and good. Mm. Also, we're going to open and close the movie on, like, mushy, sentimental bullshit. Yeah, this is not what that this fucking movie is like. This movie is like, all these men were sent to pointlessly die. They were fucking massacred in the millions for no reason in something that only led to more suffering and bloodshed uh, because of fucking short-sightedness and greed. Anyhow. Yeah, I think that's kind of the central problem of the movie is that you can see that passion and that anger in every bit that has to do with the war. And then when the melodrama starts, the passion just drains out and it's just like medium shot, two people talking. Yada yada. Next scene. Medium shot. Two people talking. The the passion drains out of the movie. It felt like he was he was made by the studio to have this whole subplot. I have heard that the this film was rushed, and considering the time it came out, uh, I sort of can imagine why. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so they uh they also wasted most of their budget on like the last ten minutes of the movie. So like a solid like 15 20% of this film is stock footage from World War 1. Yeah, and and I actually think that the, a lot of the stock footage is pretty effective, especially in the beginning where you have that montage cutting between the uh, brutality and violence and the weird chipper French singing. Uh I think that expresses the, you know, it, it's obviously sort of ironic juxtaposition there and I think it works pretty well. Mm. Also, you might think from the title of this film that it has something to do with the Dreyfus affair, <laughs> uh, since that's where what made the <laughs> phrase J'accuse famous, uh, but it has absolutely nothing to do with that. Uh, and it's just taking a famous phrase as its title. And he also just repeats it like 70 times for no good reason. He's like, just so you guys remember, this is like, it's like if they like said Back to the Future like seven times in the movie. We need to go <laughs> back to the future to fix everything and back to the future because I want this clock to work and back to the future so you can fuck your mom. Back to the future. Back to the future. This is heavy. <laughs> Both of these movies we watched this week had title drops. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's all I got. That's everything. <laughs>
this is probably getting a little ahead of ourselves, but so at the in the interminable middle of this movie, John Diaz uh, has to go live in his workshop by where all of his friends died to work on an invention that will stop war. And the only thing he comes up with is glass that's perfectly suited to use as armor. Yep. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the it, it completely does not. It, <laughs> that reminds me of um, when we watched The Invisible Man and the plan was apparently number one, become invisible. Number two, strangling. Uh, number three, world domination. Uh, where this is just like, here's the plan. Okay, I, I do glass, uh, steel glass, uh, world peace. Bam, done, finished. No, he's not very good at doing anything he wants to do. Which, I mean, I guess no. I identify with, but like, even his fucking like ghost thing doesn't work. Yeah. Like, he's just like, let me get all these ghosts, and then they're just kind of like, ooh, I'm spooky, and then that's it. Yeah, can we talk about how Jean is a terrible, terrible protagonist? He's just like, oh man, that Jean, he's so good, he survives everything he goes through. Oh, that Jean, he's got these two ladies who are totally into him. He feels like a, like a fan fiction character. It's, <laughs> it's bad. Yeah, ironically, for a movie about the horrors of war, its main character is badass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He survived uh, two unsurvivable trench patrols. <laughs> and he's just like, he's the only one who knows what has to be done, and he's uh, he's so smart and such a badass. It's, uh, I don't like him. Yeah, and I, I mean, uh, that feeds into the problem of the middle hour and ten minutes of this movie, which is nobody seems to have a motivation or, like, take actions, really. Just, like, a bunch of stuff happens. But it doesn't happen? Yeah. Like, I don't know. You're like, okay, he has the motivation he wants to prevent war, but then he goes insane for reasons, spends, like, a while just sort of out of the movie, other characters do stuff, then he comes back, still doesn't really do anything. Uh, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not up to date on my World War II history. But, like, I understand the whole, like, we gotta have love, universal love to stop war, but also the Nazis were about to invade France? Poland. You kind of, like, you just gotta roll over for the Nazis? Like, kind of had to mobilize at least a little bit, you guys. The, the philosophy's not all there, I don't think. I mean, I don't know if you know anything about uh, French and the French in wars, but uh, <laughs> they're really good at losing. That's a calumny. Uh, fun fact, my grandfather, my British grandfather, once pulled me aside in the middle of a dinner and apropos of nothing, said, you know, the French have never won a war. So, yes. <laughs> Conquered, like, most of the continent. Yeah, no, uh, while I uh, disagree with your grandfather's historical interpretation. Oh, I do too. <laughs> I, I think that there is, you know, there's something to be said about, yeah, I mean, you're right in that France didn't invade anywhere to start World War II. I, I think it's appropriate that the sort of crux of this film is Verdun, which uh, obviously is one of the most notorious and horrible battles in the history of the human race. And the French won that battle. They, they accomplished their goals, but literally it took an entire generation of French men dying to accomplish that. And uh, I re reading about the history of it, you know, I forget who said this, but a, somebody I was reading said that the French won Verdun, uh, they won World War I, but French world power was buried there. Uh, because never again would there ever be the will to sacrifice so much for, for that again in France after Verdun. So, um, yeah, it, it's an appropriate crux of the film. And even if like, doesn't all come together quite right. <laughs> uh, it's yeah. interesting that it's set in 1936, which was before the film was released. And it appears the war in the film is, is like a 
a fictional, imagined pan-European war. It wasn't that prescient about it, or maybe it wasn't trying to be, but it's, like, very vague about what this war actually is. Like, who, Fr- France is at war, I guess, you know, but anyhow. Um, I just want to talk again about these ghosts. Um, <laughs> yeah, we haven't, we barely talked about the fucking ghosts. And they're the only interesting thing in the movie! <laughs> if that part wasn't part of this movie, we would not have even, like, considered this film. Yeah, no, this was, uh, I needed something from 1938, and this movie had ghosts in it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I want to take exception with the fact that they have those, like, fucking, like, stone, like, caskets that have, like, the statues on top that are, like, like dead bodies, and those, like, come to life as if that's actually the dead body. That's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't nobody fucking encased in goddamn concrete on top of a goddamn grave for y'all to fucking wake up. Agreed. <laughs> but it'd be cool if they did. <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, obviously, you know, looking at the um, extras who are ghosts, uh, many of them were real World War One veterans who were maimed. Uh, so when you see all the people with, like, gruesome disfigurements, uh, those were real uh, people who uh, suffered those in the war. Anything else to say about Jacques? I think we summed it up. What's the uh, the moral that we can take from this movie? Don't make promises that your ass can't cash. Yeah, don't make any promises at all. <laughs> uh, war is bad. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk for a second about how I don't like war movies. Okay. Um, Sabrina, I'm talking about this a little bit. I don't like war movies because uh, 99% of them are propaganda for one side or the other. Uh, not like, of the war, but like it's either like look how great we are at this war, or it's like look how terrible war is. And like the only like really successful few of them, like Apocalypse Now, are like sure war is hell, but like it shows like why people do war things, not just like oh war's bad. Isn't that the Truffaut thing? What? Uh, yeah, he said uh, no such thing as an anti-war movie. Like you can't make a war an anti-war movie without glamorizing war. Basically, yeah. I, which I don't think is totally true, but it's not a bad point. Yeah, I thought it was obviously, yes, anti-war movie, um, but I did like that it was a little less, hey, war is bad, guys, as much as, hey, unnecessary killing is not good, guys. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, that's that's something I admire about it, because you can say, like, we, you know, we talk about, well, you know, the political situation in Europe, uh, World War II is really just a continuation of World War One, which is, you know, the fundamental problems were never resolved in the armistice, and, well, the political realities, but it's like, this is not what this fucking movie is about. This is about the, the literal, on-the-ground human suffering mm-hmm. uh, caused by it, in just, in the people, not the people making the decisions, but the people who are dying for them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, too, but also like 90% of the movie was not actually about that. Yeah, no, the, the good parts of this, the parts I liked about this movie were about that. A lot of yeah, it was not. Same. Yeah. A lot of it was bullshit filler, but there was stuff in there I liked. Well, gang, would you recommend Shakus? Is that a real question? Like, I know it's like tradition. That is how I conclude each segment of this show. I want to kill myself. More than usual? I mean, yeah, but like, what about the movie? <laughs> yeah, this movie's not good. J'agree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah no i would not recommend watching this movie there's a lot of it i like well no there's like less than half of it that i like that half i like a lot but it is not nearly enough to make me suggest anyone watch it even fans of this show well gang uh i think that just about wraps up this episode so uh next week we're going to get back into the golden age of horror after this brief little uh diversionary period sojourn descent uh, into hell <laughs> It's uh, 1939. We're going to be watching uh, Son of Frankenstein and The Hound of the Baskervilles. Any uh, final thoughts, guys? Anything we want to say to the folks out there in podcast land? 
hey, if you like listening to the things that we say, you should support us on Patreon. How do you do that? You should go to patreon.com slash spookorama and then give us money. With that money, we will give you other cool things like some special episodes. We just released a special one. And then other things like <laughs> pictures of Bella Lugosi and drag. So <laughs> I think, well, anyhow, it was Boris Karloff. Yeah, they're the same person. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I'm so excited to finish the semester so I have time to do stupid shit in Photoshop. (laughs) And that stupid shit could be yours, (laughs) listeners. All you have to do is sign up on Patreon uh, and throw us a little bit of your hard-earned money each month. Uh, So thank you very much if you choose to do that. But if you're like the rest of us and uh, you take all your hard-earned money and throw it at your cat, you should send us cat pics on Twitter at (laughs) twitter.com slash spookorama. All of us check it regularly. So uh, yeah, and uh, you can also send us an email at uh, spookorama podcast at gmail dot com. If we ever, I was going to say if we get enough, but even if we ever get one email, we might have a mailbag. <laughs> that, that would be fun. <laughs> that would be so fun. That would be fun. Also, I would love to imagine that we're not just screaming into the ether every time we record one of these, because it does take me a while to edit them, and it does take us a while to record. So for the love of God, please leave us a comment, maybe a review, like and subscribe, I don't know, anything. God, for the love of God. (laughs) Barnes needs this, guys, really. (laughs) Well, anyhow, gang, it's been another great episode. I've had fun. Hope you all have, too. Uh, We're going to be seeing you again next week, so tune on in again on Saturday night, like always. Uh, Say goodbye, folks. Goodbye, folks. Bye, everybody. Bye. See ya. Bye, everyone. As I was walking down the road, a feeling fine and lucky, I were a group and such, and came up to me, says he looked fine and cut the out. For the king is in need of men, I come read this proclamation, now a life in front is for you, then will be a fine vacation now. So says I to him, but telling me, Sergeant Dario, if I had a bike stuck up on me back, would I look fine and cheerio? Put it out of your train and drill until they had your want the Frenchies on it, maybe warm and thunders, it's lofty in the trenches, oh. The sergeant smiled and winked his eyes, smile was most provoking, oh, he twiddled and twirled his way, moustache says, hey, you're only joking, oh. The cunning passing by says I What if it's snowing home? Come rain or hail or wind or snow I'm not going out to Flanders So there's fighting and double and silly dawn It's your sergeants and your commanders go Let Englishmen fight English wars It's nearly time they started Always a loot of the sergeant ever